Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. of the Modern School of Film. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, Danger Incorporated. Singer, writer, screamer. Serge Tonkian is with us. Welcome. Welcome to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I am the founder of the Modern School of Film with you on Murmur Radio. Murmur Radio, one word, dot com. <laughs> Social handles at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. You can subscribe and listen to the show anytime access, truly anytime access. <laughs> iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. If you have a subject you would like me to tackle on the show, email me directly, murmurradio at gmail.com. Send me a subject. I will match your subject to a guest. I will bring you on the show, and you and I can chat. And you can tell me what you thought, what you thought of the handling of the subject, the good, the bad, the ugly, the more ugly. Let me know. Murmur Radio, welcome back. Welcome. On Murmur Radio every week, one guest, one subject for you. Today's guest is Serge Tonkian. Serge is a singer, a writer, a developer, an, an entrepreneur. I don't think he's a barista yet, but it's still early in the day. <laughs> he's also the front man for System of a Down. Many of you listening may know Serge from that small, not so small bit of history that is, yes, ongoing. Uh, there's always a public dialogue about the next system record or not. And the guys are still working together, still touring, still doing some live stuff. Serge's brother-in-law is the drummer, so it's it's all in conversation. Uh, nothing is over. So today, uh, really excited to have Serge to talk about anything, absolutely anything. But when I think of Serge, I think of today's subject, which is risk. And frankly, I'm honored and more so humbled to be talking to you today about risk and Serge today about risk on 9-11, a day that that has a relationship to risk, certainly, but a larger relationship to sacrifice because the men and women involved here in the United States in 9-11, the victims, their families, their survivors, the responders, sacrificed themselves. So today I'm honored to be talking about risk on a day that's a day of true sacrifice. That said, let's talk about risk. To put today's topic into a macro and a micro, it's really unfair to the topic and really unfair to all those dirigible thoughts of what risk is, because in a way it scans the largest spectrum. Well, let's look at the spectrum. The spectrum is broad. There's so many different forms of risk. There are personal risks. There are on the high wire risks. There are geographic risks. Where do you live? Uh, professional risks. There are emotional risks. There are romantic risks. There are friendship risks. Everyday risks, there are communal risks, there are political risks, there are geopolitical risks, there are digital risks, there are artistic risks. Risks. Even though I've told Serge about today's subject, of course, I have a feeling it's going to sneak up on him a bit. And one of the reasons why is those who take risks or those who engage in the factors of risk rarely believe they're risky people and rarely believe nor would they acknowledge that what they do is a risk. 
So Serge, as once a budding barrister, until he slammed on the brakes of his Jeep and said, I'm not studying law anymore. We'll talk to, to him about that. And that obviously, no doubt, is a risk. Do risk takers really understand? I think they do sometimes. I mean, there are, such, there are people who acknowledge I am taking a risk. It's a powerful form of acknowledgement. I think today what will be interesting to find are the inadvertent forms of risk because they're always in motion. And we talked about them on their kind of bucket-like level, the risk we take every day. Talking to people can be a risk. Uh, making eye contact can be a risk. But also leaving your country can be a risk. Taking a stand politically can be a risk. Saying something virally can be a risk. But unfortunately, sadly, melancholy more often than not, saying things digitally is not a risk. And that's a sort of place where the word risk has lost its steam. You know, so many people say things, don't attach their name to them, don't attach a location to them, couch them in a form of rhetoric. And their words, though I think words are risky, words have suffered under the undulation of the terms of risk. I think an apology can be a risk. I'm sorry. I was wrong can be a risk. There are singing risks. There are risks we take when we say things, when we take a stand. So as you listen today and as you recap your own ways and means, maybe there are more risks that you're taking in your life than you may have comprehended. And it's not one to take a bow. I don't think risk. Okay. I take risks. I do. I don't really understand them to be risks until after they're taken or until someone says, you've taken a huge risk there. (laughs) I think that's a good thing, ultimately, that you don't really know you're taking a risk. It's not really the point of doing the thing I'm doing or Serge doing the thing he's doing. It's interesting, after 9-11 or the week of 9-11, Serge published a piece called Understanding Oil, where he explored, let's say, the fallout from 9-11. And this was the week of 9-11. Also, the system of down album toxicity was released 9-11. So it's interesting, you know, those hand in glove, I'm sure there was a lot of blowback public response to Serge publishing this article, but also I'm sure within the band and within the management, I want to talk to him about that because timing risk does have a relationship to timing. Risk has a relationship to witnessing. If we take a risk and no one watches it, yes, it's still a risk, but the power and the potential inspiration of risking is something that I think needs to be galvanized and corralled, although we don't always want to put such a fine point on risk because, again, the agent of risk is often doing it out of another causality, out of another motivation, out of another idea. So let's use it around Surge. Uh, When System of a Down went on hiatus 2006, he admittedly was the agent of that hiatus. That was a risk. It was a professional and let's say personal risk. You know how ravenous fans are. System of a Down was on top, was on top monetarily, critically, popularity e. So to take a hiatus was a risk. Serge actually had a a, um, solo album that next year after the hiatus, that must have been a risk. He's also ventured into film scoring. I want to talk to him about film scoring in multiple languages. Risky, risky. Check, check. (laughs) I also like the fact that Serge is an entrepreneur, as I said. He is coming out with a new brand of coffee called Kavat, which is an Armenian word for cup. It's coffee in the Armenian tradition. Risk. Will it be even good? I haven't tasted it yet. I'm really looking forward to it, though. People who know me know I look forward to coffee, (laughs) as many of you do. (laughs) So those are risks for him as well. And when we talk about Armenia, he's been very outspoken, A, on the genocide, which nations still haven't readily acknowledged. The millions of Armenians who were killed in the genocide of 1915, I do, Serge does, Serge has, Serge will, Serge's relatives have been a victim of that genocide. Is all risk created equal? Talking to someone could be terrifying. For someone, that can be a risk. Leaving your house can be a risk, can be terrifying for someone. Is that as risky as leaving a home country to gain freedom, to gain emotional freedom, professional freedom? Oh, man. Serge has taken risks of movement. He's taken risks of uh, identity. He wasn't born in Armenia. He was born in Lebanon, raised in L.A., but he wears his Armenian heritage on his sleeves more so than ever. He's a popular figure. That is a risk. You know, borders and risk, identity and risk. He's someone who could talk to multiple forms of risk. I never liked to risk the game. I was always too impatient. Risk is perpetual. Risk is forward. Risk is bravery. It's its own word. It's its own condition. Let's examine it today with Serge Tonkin soon. 
Now this. Sarah? Oh God! Sarah! Now! knowingly say they don't take risks. That's like saying someone doesn't like to laugh, but you know, there are a lot of risk averse people. Uh, But today I want to unearth some of these sort of invisible risks, risks that people don't consider to be risks. And to do that, we need someone who takes risks. He may not agree, but that's sort of part of the point. Risk takers don't usually think they're risky. But today's guest is, we want to talk to him about some personal, professional, and geographic risks. And today he checks all those boxes. He's been writing songs for 25 fucking years. Uh, He's been doing guitars for fucking 25 fucking years. I added an 
an extra fucking there. Um, but, <laughs> but he's also, you can never have too many of them, as he knows. Uh, we, you, right. He's also been taking risks for 25 fucking years and longer, and his family longer than that, and we'll talk about all that today. He's a painter, a poet, a singer, a composer of film and theater. He's a political activist, a screamer, an entrepreneur, a reformed lawyer, thankfully, a pescatarian, most importantly, a human being. Please welcome to Murmur into the Modern School of Film, Mr. Serge Tonkian. Serge, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me. How are you, buddy? I'm well, man. How are you? Good. That was the best, best intro I've ever had. I wish I, I'm going to record. I'm going to steal your recording and just use it everywhere. It's all yours. <laughs> it's all yours. Trademark uh, 2018. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> it's all yours. So talk about this idea. I think it seems like a fait accompli. Yeah, everyone takes risks, but that's not really true. Do you consider yourself someone who's taken risk traditionally and, and now even in, in your life? Uh, I love the game risk growing up. Um, <laughs> and that's, been, that's the closest <coughs> form of risk that I've taken. No, I, I listening to your uh, explanation, definition of what a risk taker is, is not necessarily one who agrees that something is risky. We're we're in a world where following our path sometimes is risky, and in that sense, you would be a risk taker. Um, I don't. I'm, I'm personally. I, I'm very, you know, conservative as far as taking risks. But um, following my path, I, I don't. I don't leave options open. Like mm. when I know what I need to do, I do it, irrespective of the risk. Um, in that sense, I am very risky. I can't, and I mean this respectfully, I can't help think about you and your family. I, I have to think about them all in the same idea because you've been very overt in your respect for beyond your life and, and how other lives have impacted you. I, I think risk has to be modeled. Let's assume you do take risk. Let's just assume it. Do you think risk has to be modeled or is it a natural tendency? I'll give a few examples, but I think when you don't have to take a risk, that's that's great. I mean, it's better not to take a risk at anything. And, uh, you know, but, you know, but that artistic kind of does art exist within safety? That's a whole different uh, conversation. But, um, you know, as a human being, I don't think you should take a risk unless you really need to. Um, uh, for me, when I, the times that, that I'm thinking of as an example uh, that, that were risky in speaking were, you know, like right after 9-11, and I wrote a piece called Understanding Oil, which I just saw in Kerrang! Today posted. Yeah. Um, you know, the, this many years later, kind of basically trying to find a, you, you know, uh, trying to understand the whole situation psychologically uh, and, and why something like this can happen, tying it into U.S. foreign policy over the last 50 years in the Middle East, and understanding all of it in a, in a, in a truly, like, honest fashion at a time where the risky part was the timing. Now, now if you read something like that, you'd be like, yeah, of course, that makes sense, no worries. But at that time of a lot of jingoism, reactionism, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, which a lot of it understandably so, but the reaction was uh, risky. Yeah. Um, yeah. And few others that I remember from the art, com from the music community who Maynard, James uh, Maynard uh, notably Madonna, like that, that made statements accordingly were, you know, we, we all took, took risks. But at the time, was it a risk writing what's, what we consider the truth and how important is the truth to art so i think that is the conversation as far as risk with artists is how how much are you willing to stand up for what you believe in speaking with search tonki and i want to go back to your life but i want to st step on uh 9 so to say for a second and we're talking about it and it's okay. been republished apropos of today it is today so it's kind of obviously yeah, we yeah. we pay a yeah. great debt and a great a great solemnity to a day like today on 9 but you know it's interesting contextually and you know this better than i correct the record a toxicity was that week was released that yeah. week and it was huge yeah. uh and this is not to, to to make to in implode any guilt here, but it's, it's it is a fascinating turn of events. You did publish that ex essay. Did anyone in your team or even in the group say, Serge, man, too soon? You know what I'm saying? Because no, no, you're no. full of these it's people. And it's not to be mean. You know, artists and public artists like you are full of these people. Did anyone so say, too soon, man, too soon? Oh, yeah, absolutely. First of all, uh, yes, our, our record came out the week of September 11, 2001, was number one the yeah. week of 2000. September 2001, even after the uh, Clear Channel took Chop Suey off the radio, Chop Suey, mind you, the chorus said, uh, self-righteous suicide. Mm. Amazing. <laughs> like, like, what the, they, the whole world was like, what the fuck, right? A amazing. Um, 
trust in myself right to die. I cry when angels deserve to die, but like, what the fuck? Everyone's like, off the air, off the air. But uh, the record still hit number one. We were supposed to be touring uh, a day or two after 9-11. It got postponed by a week. I was still on tour. Like, I was in New York a week or two after 9-11 during the whole kind of code alert. The alerts, the Amber, yeah. Amber alerts oh, from yeah. here to Never Neverland, yeah. I remember waking up on the bus, walking into the um, ramp of Continental Airlines Arena across the city uh, and uh, just in New Jersey for the New York show, of course. Uh, wow. And there was, there was no security and I freaked out and I called our agent and I'm, I'm like, you know, it's a week after or two weeks after 9-11. We're in New York and, and there's no security. Uh, uh, you know, what the fuck is going on? You know, like, you know, every night was, was a gamble because all of those threats that were happening at the time. So, yeah, I think, you know, uh, I never, uh, until you brought this subject up of risk, I never even thought of my life as risky. But I guess I guess we do walk that line, you know. And to answer your, your question more correctly, um, yes, the band members took me aside uh, once I had posted Understanding Oil and there was this huge public outcry and death threats against the band. Howard Stern had me on his show to defend my words, my actions. Uh, and we were just starting a tour. I remember we were in Denver, Colorado. I was like up all night so I could do the Stern show way early in the morning and then play a show that day. And the band took me in a room and they're like, they looked at me and they're like, you're a smart guy. What the fuck are you doing? Are you trying to get us killed? Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know? And wow. I'm like, I'm like, I just looked at them and I'm like, I really feel bad guys. Cause I, you know, this is like reflecting on all of us and, and you got, you know, it, the, the band, I, my words are, are, you know, uh, the reaction is coming against the band, but, but it's just the truth. They're like, yeah, I, we know it's the truth, but that's besides the point. You know, wow. it was, it was this moment of like, uh, I felt, I felt apologetic to my band members for the reaction against my words, although my words were the truth and I stood by them. So it was this weird plethora of, of feelings, like just not knowing whether I was actually feeling apologetic or not, or, you know, it was just very strange. So it taught me a lot, though. It taught me a lot about uh, how things work, how when you speak the truth and public opinion is on, is on your side, like when George Bush was unpopular, speaking against him wasn't fun, obviously, but when he became incredibly unpopular later everyone started taking hits at him and then i'm like come on are you fucking kidding me no i where know where were you where were you three years ago you know it's like so it's kind of like you know the truth is the truth irrespective of public opinion sometimes it's you know? an it's an interesting time and you put a, a really interesting uh hole in the donut there and 2001 was pre-twitter in a way pre-facebook and pre-social media allow me because it's getting to a better question i was reading today that paul mccartney said that he and john lennon masturbated together uh, and I was reading it and I was thinking, what's better to say nothing or to say something? You know, there's been a lot of times right. where you, you've responded. You're a responder. You're an intellectual responder. I didn't put that in the opening, but I should have. Have you ever felt there's, there may be more risk in not responding? It's, it's way riskier not to, say, not to say something overall. I mean, you know, um, uh, there's so many quotes about neutrality being the death of uh, morality, you know. Um, there's so many e evil ills happening around the world, and if we don't react, and if we don't say something, and if we don't do something, where does that leave us? And, and, and overall, we are neutral as a society. We're neutral to genocide. We're neutral to invasions. We're neutral to bombings. We're neutral to uh, a, a lot of us, uh, to refugee, uh, you know, uh, calamities. We're, you know, and, and lots, uh, even, even those of us that stand up, feel like we have limited power to make change around in in our own society and that that inability to affect change that that feeling of uh, helplessness is 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 you know within a democracy in our lives is is a is a weird thing um it's led to you know, this type of uh, society where, where we don't believe in anything anymore. Speaking with Serge Tonkin, we're a reactive society. So some, when someone like you or, or someone of your, you know, your trade says something first, it's off. The first responder intellectually is often the one that's looked at as a fool in this country, maybe over, over the world. You know, so I, I, I agree with you. I think not saying something is riskier and I think dialogue should lead to more dialogue. Have you ever bit your tongue for fear of something, for on a, on a level of intellect or statement, have you ever held back? I, I bite my tongue daily because there are so many 
so many injustices that 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 just basically roll day day to day into each themselves that you can't even fathom having time to respond to all of them at this point in life you know i mean you bring up certain issues in certain societies and you might as well have an argument with the wall you know gun issues in the u.s for example you know every time i post about that hate 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 this that just you know the the trolling uh the the trolling culture and and all of that and there's there's all these trigger issues in different societies and i wish that we could get educated again I wish that, and wow. I'm not talking about just scholastic, but cultural, scholastic combination, you know, um, uh, em- em- empathy, you know, being part of our education. I wish we could get educated again. I wish we could uh, slide back up the charts of even uh, academic education in the world as, as a country, um, because there's a real danger in that. You know, I, everything that we're facing today, the leaders that we have, the the, the conversations that we're having is um, not a, not not based on an intellectual uh, powerhouse. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I reason, and you have a young family, and, and obviously you have a huge brain. I think we go to school too early in life, and I'm not talking about elementary school or secondary school. I'm talking about university. I, I think right. now, I think now's the time. You know, in, in our elder statesmanhood, um, it sounds like you don't need that. You, you're an autodidact, but I, I totally agree with you. Uh, you know, I, I want to present the case in our midbeat here a little bit about other forms of risk for you, which I think are personal risks. But I want you to bring bring you back and you tell me. I think you took a huge personal professional risk when you slammed on your brakes in the 80s uh, and you were, you were working for your uncle um, in the jewelry district and you said, you know, I'm not going forward as a lawyer or anything else. I want to make music. Where, where did that come from? Uh, I, this may be old hat for you by now, but I think it's a risk. I know a lot of people listening are going to think it's a risk. Where did it come from for you? Was that against the grain of the family? And, and were you scared of, of that proclamation? It's a very interesting question. Um, I went to University Cal State Northridge, got a marketing degree because I didn't know I wanted to do music. I actually started playing music in college um, as a way of just kind of diffusing the mental tension studies and everything else happening with my life and my life of my family at the time. Uh, my family was going through a very difficult uh, time in, in financially because we were, you know, my dad did really well um, at, at, you know, and, and built this, you know, a, you know, middle class lifestyle for us, and then everything got taken away due to lawsuits and all this neg- negativity around things happening. It was a very difficult time. So, um, came out of college, started working with my uncle in the jewelry industry, an in industry I knew because I grew up, you know, like on the weekends and summers, I'd go and intern with him and work with him and whatnot. And, uh, and I've, I've been in different businesses, you know, I've ran a car wash, I've been in the shoe business that my dad was in growing up. And then I had my own software company for years, but I decided to leave the jewelry business because I, I, I did have the realization that I wanted to, at first I had the realization that I wanted to be something else. I didn't want to do jewelry and I wanted to be something else. So I thought, what else could I do? Hey, let me be a lawyer. All my friends are, you know, taking the LSAT and becoming lawyers. I could do that. I've gone through all these lawsuits with my parents and shit. I can, I can do this. I've read all the briefs. I already talked to all the lawyers. You know, I know civil, civil lawsuits already might as well learn this. And I went to my first, uh, training classes for Kaplan to learn how to take the LSAT. And everyone was so excited about law and I fucking hated it. (laughs) And I, it was like one of those moments where like, why are these people so happy about this shit? It pissed me off. So as I'm driving back home, I remember I had a Jeep Wrangler. It was raining. It was like this, this classic moment in life where that you'll never forget. Um, Late at night after a whole day of work in downtown LA, uh, studying in Long Beach, driving back home to the Valley. I had this epiphany. I'm like, do I want to be a fucking lawyer? I'm like, fuck no. And I hit the brakes literally in the middle of the road and I hit my dashboard and I'm like, I'm going to fucking do music, whatever it takes. So it was like, I had to go to the edges of who I shouldn't be for my spirit to kind of jump out of my mouth and go, you fucking idiot. This is what you need to do. Mm. From that day forward, it was all strategic planning. Um, in terms of, and that was before system, so obviously. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So it was all strategic planning. How do I work as much as I can on my art 
to make it stronger, better, write music, um, and what can I do in the interim for a living for myself and my family who actually depended financially on me. So it was a very difficult kind of road, a bridge, if you will. And for years, I had to kind of do a little music and, and set up a software company so I can make a living. And that started to do well, and which is now my own company is taking up all my time. And so... I remember you, you asked about family um, pressure. I, I sat down with my dad at one point and I said, I'm, I have a conundrum because, you know, I'm earning a decent living doing the software thing and helping the family and you're working full time, but I really want to do music and I feel like I can't do all of it now at the same time. I feel like I'm I'm being buried, you know? And he just looked at me and he said, I've given up on my dreams when I was young because he was a musician as well, but he never did it professionally. He goes, if I have to get a second job, whatever the fuck I have to do, go do your music. Don't don't give up on your dream. And that was the fuel that I needed to lift me into outer space, if you will. So it all worked out. You risk is lonely, man. And, and you sound like a total slacker as a kid. God, what what didn't you do? I and mean, what the hell didn't you sell? I was waiting for a lemonade stand. No, no, man, I'm telling you, risk is lonely. And I, I'm talking about even from jump, like rock diving, you need someone to validate it and t- almost to witness it in a weird way. And as you said, your dad had an artistic background. I'm telling you, man, and um, as if you're not here, the fact that your father re- reflected back to you something told you maybe you were going in the right direction you know but but I, I i can't help but think you know we had johnny marr recently and not to go through the whole smiths thing and him and morrissey but i asked him you know because a lot of people pin the tail on the donkey of him breaking up the smiths and i said did you ever think what the fuck am i doing <laughs> you know what 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 did i engineer and they were kids when the smiths broke up yeah. when system of a down was going on hiatus 2006 did you ever think we're at the top of the game now like did you ever think what am i doing here what what can i turn this back did you think that was a risk a hiatus could that be a risk uh at the time i didn't because again i knew in my heart that that i needed to do other things and i couldn't physically be a part of it so for me it, you know it, it was either moving on without me or the band taking a hiatus and that was i that was their decision to make obviously um and you know bec- and you know when when i feel something is my vision if i don't do it that's the risk i i always worry about what'll happen to me Interesting. if i don't follow my vision and i do something that might be profitable or might be uh might make sense to everyone else except my vision you know, I, I fear the consequences. That's that's the risk that I fear, not not in doing whatever I need to do, even if it's completely, you know. Yeah, I mean, on on a on a business level, you would, you could say that's incredibly risky, leaving a band at the height of its career to go and do whatever, you know, whether it's a solo career, which I really needed to do at the time, uh, or whatever for that matter. But that's what I felt I needed to do. And it worked out in the end, you know, and we came back together. We've been touring since 2011, and we haven't been able to make a record, as, as, as is very clear publicly. Um, and that's okay. Uh, we're still great friends, and we may we may or may not be a band forever. I don't think every band's meant to be a band forever. I fuck. I, I'm no band should be a band forever. To be well, honest, this is kind of what Mar. You know. This is kind of what Mar said. Mar said, and I'm paraphrasing. He's a great guy. You'd really dig him. He said, to me, it was unnatural being in the same band all my life. Like that was unnatural. Yeah. What, what, do, what do you? How do you respond to that? And I, 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 I agree. It's interesting. I agree. It, I mean, I look. It's it for art's sake. What is art? What is what is music? You know, it's it's uh, you know, it's okay to do stuff with the same people for a while, but it's like you have to always change the formula for it to be creative. You know, and that also includes who you work with. You know, uh, I love seeing artists that I've respected and loved in the past work with other people or do a different type of music or use a different form of music or use a different instrumentation, work with orchestra instead of a rock band or whatever. I love seeing that because it brings out different colors stemming from the same artistic creativity that I fell in love with in the first place. No moss has ever uh, grown under your feet, you know, but there's the other F word, and I mentioned this to Johnny, I'm going to mention it to you, the fans. You know, the, the, when, when something stops, you know, there's this fetish, fans are fetishists, as you know. You know, when something stops that works and people love, there's that fear. Did you, did you calibrate that? Did you calibrate the blowback? Because that's part of the risk, too. Did you think, what, what, what are they going to say about all this, the, the, the people, the Vox Populi? Did you think about that? I think the calibration comes in the presentation more so than the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. 
In other words, I think you decide what you need to do, and then you present it in a way that, look, this is this is how I'm doing this because of this. I'm, obviously, you know, I'm first of all, let me always say, and, and I, I have to always, it's not that I need to remind myself, but I have to say it, that I feel inc- incredibly grateful that people want a system of a down record, that, that they are, like, really hungry for it. I mean, what? how many projects does any artist have in the world that has a pre-existing demand? It's fucking <laughs> magical, you yeah, know? Yeah, however, yeah. however, an artist has to make whatever comes to them and, and has to make it in a way that is honest, truthful, and, and uh, you know, the right thing to do. So if that works out a system of a down, then that's great. So far it hasn't. If it doesn't, then so be it, you know? Um, you, you have to make the decisions that are right for you. Yes, Cal, I mean, I post something political. The first response is, fuck you, go make a system record. Still. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's okay. And I laugh, and I go, as long as the fuck you go make a system record there, I guess will always be important. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it's interesting hearing you, hearing you sum it up in a way, and you've been, I think you've been very public about all of this, and that's one of the great ironies about this, if, if I may say so. You've spoken to the fans as if you would speak to a colleague, meaning you haven't closed any doors and you haven't opened any doors, and that's kind of what human beings do, don't they? But as you yeah. know, fans want open or closed. You, you know what I'm saying? They want the other shoe to drop, but if we really step back as if you're not here and look at what you've said about system or any of your stuff it's nothing's over and nothing's starting we're still working together nothing's over i'm related to the band too your brother-in-law so anyway family and friends at this point you know exactly And, and we're working together and maybe we'll continue maybe we won't i mean but but the truth of the matter is that you know, it's it's our decision to make ultimately, and and even though we appreciate the the love and feedback and excitement and and demand for new music, it's like that that's it's it's incredible. But but ultimately, we have to do what we have to do as artists. Uh, and and yeah, I I've noticed in our industry, it's very common to share drama, but not specific details of how we do things right. and why we do things. Right. And that's just a matter of respect because I don't you know. Fans are people that enjoy my my work. Like I have uh, immense respect for people that love music, you know. And so I respect these people, and therefore I have to be honest with them. And of course, you don't want to always, you know, write, uh, share everything. You don't want to basically, you know, uh, dirty laundry out there and stuff like that. There's there's certain things you keep among your partners, but I think when it comes to things that really matter to them, and they, you have a certain responsibility to share the, that with them. As we move to our last beat uh, with Serge, uh, he's been graciously here with us. And I was also thinking about 2007 a little bit, because that was your first solo record. That is hella, oh man, I sound like a California, that is hell. That is a hella risky thing too, dude. Uh, I, I completed my California grammatic attack. <laughs> yeah, um, Yeah, no, but you know, that was risky. What about that from you inside and outside? Because you didn't wait a whole lot of time. I was working on my solo record while I was doing the last system tour on the bus. The risk is in not doing something that your vision is telling you to do. And, you know, irrespective, look, it's, I know we're in, a, we're in an industry where, you know, public opinion matters a lot in terms of sales, in terms of viability, in terms of commerciality, in terms of the fluff. But I come from different industries where those things don't exist, and I never bought it. In other words, you got to do what you got to do as an artist. People like it, they buy it. You know, you make a nice pizza, people buy it because it tastes good. If it doesn't taste good, they don't buy it, so fucking what? Or if they think that it looks bad and they don't buy it, even if it tastes good, you made it look bad. Like, it's, people are going to do what they're going to do, you know? You know, going from a big band to doing a solo record wasn't risky at all for me. It was what I really needed to do. It was emancipating. It was... Uh, it built my confidence as, as a solo artist. It built my confidence to do the different things that I do now as a composer, working with orchestra, working with filmmakers, and, and all this stuff. You know, it, it gave me that liberation that I needed as an artist. It was the most important thing that I had done after System of a Down, was making that one record. So, you know, if people hated it, they would have hated it, and I would have continued making music. 
<laughs> yeah. So yeah. you know, it's just it's just the way it is. I got lucky that people liked it, you know. So it, it helped me. Well, that's what's interesting um, about you. You're such a thinker of architecture, but when you're an artist, you're an artist, and you let the muse speak to you. And that reminded me of yeah. some of the things as we end on a couple of things that you're doing now. You know, I, I don't mean to throw them away. I just I want to bring us up to the present tense. You're doing a lot of film scoring, and I think even though we're in this kind of golden age of really smart musicians like yourself doing soundtracks it's pretty risky too because you know you're also putting a new bullseye on your back Uh, talk about uh, was there any fear trepidation going into soundtrack and also because i think people who love movies tend to get uh you know like uh their butt gets tight when they work on them did you feel risky about scoring or were you thinking i want to take a bite out of this apple the latter i you know I've, i've been wanting to score films for many years before i did it and you know i have a I've become friends with a lot of composers because I appreciate what they do and, you know, gotten into the film world, met a lot of directors, studio film people, uh, producers, and, you know, I love film, uh, you know, and, and, and I, love the, I love how music helps shape a film. And so I've really wanted to do that, so now I'm lucky I've, I've got, you know, a dozen or so uh, IMDb composer credits, and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm like in, headed, headed in that direction full, you know, with my sales up. What I love about composing the most is every project if it is a different genre of music, literally. You know, it's like making a jazz record, then a rock record, then a death metal record, then a world record, then a, you know, uh, ambient record. And I mean, that's what composing is, because every film has its own kind of, you know, n- need for a specific type of music. Uh, and and I love that. I love working with directors and trying to figure out what they have in their mind, helping their vision kind of uh, realize. To me, it's, 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 it's an incredible journey, composing. I'm, I'm like, I'm really excited about it, as you can tell. Be careful what you wish for. You know, I had Moby on the show, and I said, what did you learn about composing from composing? He said that I never want to fucking compose again. You know, and also, <laughs> well, you know, it's a different... <laughs> It's a different mus- it's a different musculature. It's time based. It's you know things on a cutting room floor. It's you know don't kill your babies. It's that kind of thing. But again, it's, I love it. it's you dig it, huh? You dig it. You dig. Yeah, you, yeah. yeah. I, the pressure doesn't get to me. Uh, I've worked without uh, limits my whole life artistically. So having limits is actually wel- a welcoming thing because it helps me get more organized and it helps me deliver something faster than I would otherwise, both in terms of n- nailing down what it is that I'm supposed to do and, and how to do it and how when to, when to finish it. And, and there are stresses that come along with uh, composing, obviously, because you know, things could get delayed. You might have two projects that are intersecting each other. You might be you know, traveling somewhere and, you know, that there's, there's many, many things that can go wrong. And, and I've dealt with a lot of that already with the films that I've done, but I still really, really enjoy doing it. As we round off a little bit, you uh, scored Intent to Destroy, the documentary by Joe Berlinger, incredible documentary about the insane lack of recognition of the Armenian genocide. But I was thinking also of Furious, the film, the Russian film you did, if we can call it that. Yeah. Was that a risk, not having Russian as a language? Did you think... Oh boy, I got to watch Tarkovsky. Uh, or did you? Did, did <laughs> I, I have watched Tarkovsky. <laughs> you still don't understand. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, they were they were kind enough to give me subtitles pretty early with the cuts, so that was welcoming. But you know, I mean, it, with an action film, you know, uh, you, you know, the the action matters a lot uh, as well. So you know, for me, it was the risk was you know. Uh, let me see what kind of film this is. Mm. Like, you know, they sent me a lot of stuff before I said yes because I wanted to confirm the quality of the actual film. So once I was sure that it was going to be a good film, the producers were really serious. They were very professional, easy to work with. And so it, it actually, I really enjoyed it doing a, an action score because I had it in me and I wanted to do something. And, and, and the producer I was working with kept on calling me and going, I love that cue. It's it's crazy. It's hard. Can you can you add more guitars? And I just kept on going, bro. You don't have to say it twice. You want more guitars? I'm your man. You know, like I, I've been doing this so, for twenty five fucking years, man. I got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The, the guitars are easy. It's the other shit that you like it. I'm so that's awesome. Well, you want more guitars? My, I'll give you a whole wall of guitars over if you want. You know, came out really good. Came it's, out really good. It's been a natural thing. Your work with Armenia, Armenian uh, causality uh, has been legion and incredible and brave, again, a risk, I think. In 2011, you awarded the Am- 
Armenian Prime Minister's Medal for your contributions to the recognition of the genocide. Um, you first, it's, correct the record books if I'm wrong, though, it seems like you first went to Armenia in 2001, yeah. which, which I find to be amazing. You were born in Lebanon, raised in, in California mo- for the most part. I found it amazing that was your first trip. Were you scared? Nope. No, I was, I was curious. You know, um, I was curious to see where my people came from because I had never been there. And uh, so that trip was very mystical, seeing, you know, um, uh, pre-Christian uh, temples and old, very old Christian churches. Armenia, you know, when you go from the U.S. to Europe, you're like, wow, Europe is so much older. When you go from Europe to Armenia, you're like, oh, my God, this is so much older than Europe. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like that kind of going backwards. Um, it's very interesting, but then, you know, I kept on going back and back, and the last time I was in Armenia was a few months ago, and before that, I went for the tail end of the revolution in Armenia. Armenia, for those that who don't know, just had a revolution this year. between The Velvet April Revolution, yeah. Thank the Velvet good- Revolution. Thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness indeed, yeah. which uh, not, not a single bullet fired, not one person died, and the whole system changed from a post uh, crypto corrupt uh, post-Soviet system to a uh, fledging prog- uh, progressive, you know, and egalitarian uh, government that's doing all of the right things. And I'm working with them on many, many different projects and both philanthropic, environmental, political, uh, consulting, all sorts of stuff. Um, so it's a very exciting time there. It's great. It's it's an energetic time because it's good to be in a place where things People have a lot of hope. They're smiling and they see the future as a positive thing versus a place that is politically regressive. Thank goodness. Well, maybe <laughs> things are, the, the, the graph is, is moving north. You know, you mentioned you're, yeah. you've been working with, uh, on a film about the Re- Velvet Revolution and also maybe yeah. a music film that's been in your coffers uh, for a few years. Is this something you would direct or score or produce or maybe combinations of the above? I mean, do you want, really want to be on the front line of putting these images and these ideas together? Uh, originally, the, the film about the revolution is going to be called I Am Not Alone, and uh, it's uh, based on the song lyrics written by the current prime minister of, the, of Armenia who, read the, who led the Velvet Revolution. It's very, very interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm executive producing the film because the idea, basically, of doing a film was, was kind of immediately mine. As, as I went to see how, you know, at the tail end of the revolution and, and the opposition figure who led the revolution became prime minister, one of the first conversations I had with him in his new office as I sat down with is, this is incredible. What, what's happened here is like historical. People have to see this. They don't, you know, it's not enough for it to be on BBC and Al Jazeera. People really have to see how in 40 days a whole country was transformed peacefully mm. using, you know, uh, using uh, uh, decentralized uh, civic disobedience as its weapon. It's, it's fucking amazing. So for me, I'm like, we have to make a film. And the prime minister's like, that's a great idea. How do, we, how do we go about doing? And I'm like, let me make some calls. And I got a few friends involved who had already shot a lot of stuff from the actual revolution and a couple of um, uh, TV stations that, that literally, you know, it's incredible because the whole thing was tele- televised live and streamed live it was streamed. on the internet. So much of it was yeah. streamed as the transition. Well, it yeah. wasn't even a transition for power. We had something rare, whether it was forcible, that a politician said, I was right, you were wrong. Uh, Serge yeah. Sargisian, uh, who was going for this, I think, again, a money grab, to be the prime minister after being the president for 10 years. Uh, and then we had this you know, historic heroic figure, as you mentioned, Nikol Pashinyan. And he basically said, Nikol is right and I'm wrong. So one last question as we go, because I was thinking about Armenia in advance of this. You know, we're dealing with something in the U.S., you're dealing with something in the U.S. that I think you're very used to, and it's borders. Uh, we could have spoken four hours about borders because, uh, you know, the story of Armenia in many ways is the story of borders, whether it's Azerbaijan or, you know, Turkey or, or Iran. You know, we have this fear now of of losing borders, and I, and I was wondering... What is the fear? What is the risk? You know, why are Americans, not a majority, let's say, but why are certain Americans afraid of taking the risk to interact and go and, and extend borders? I know this is not a light question to end on, but I just need your, right. bra- I need your brain on it because we are struggling with this now. Give us a prescription. Rather than have you reflect what's going on, give us a prescription. Should we risk the, the, the very basic thing in our life as borders and allowing people and allowing different cultures in our culture. Is there a risk that we can traverse successfully? We are a culture of different cultures. 
we already are that. First of all, you know, the, the amount of immigration that's happened into this country, uh, and whether it's legal or illegal, uh, is, is minimal uh, compared to the size of this country, compared to the needs of skilled labor in this country. And especially within the last few years, we've, got, we've had negative immigration. But besides that, the fear of borders is an unfounded one. Borders themselves, I, I had a song in 2010 on my record, Imperfect Harmonies, I had a song called Borders Are, and, you know, it just talks about borders. Borders are generally constructs of post-war uh, constructs. You know, uh, they are not delineated by God or any external, you know, deity. Uh, they are basically one in battle. Uh, a lot of borders are unfair to many populations. There are people living across borders where their families are literally across the border lines. The fear of losing borders is, is absolutely, you know, it's just... Uh, it's, it's psychosis. It, it's yeah. not a it's yeah. not a normal rational fear. Uh, it's not a normal rational uh, way of thinking. It's interesting because Armenia took twenty thousand immigrants from the civil war. Armenia's population is two point seven million. U.S. population is three hundred and fifty million. You know, I think it's there, you. You have to look at real statistics and just go, what am I really afraid of? You know, using xenophobia to or religious fervor, for that matter, to make people do things that are irrational is beyond my grasp. I have absolutely complete you know, distaste for that type of thinking. The next time we talk, not to sound so morbid, man, but you, you bring out so, so much intellect, it's a little scary. You know, I was thinking about diaspora and something you've been working with and thinking about a lot. There are currently roughly 8 million Armenians throughout the world. And uh, most weren't born in Armenia, which is fascinating. It is fascinating, right. this idea of what are borders. I mean, maybe it's just about people. You know, I, I hate to look at people and think of borders, and maybe that's the risk. Forget the border. Borders are physical, but people are beyond that. And I, I agree, and not to sound so up-up with people here. I, I think you're awesome, man, and you're, you're a really inspiring <laughs> thinker. You prove Thanks, something Rob, that, too, buddy. You, you, imp- you prove something that I've always thought, that it's voices are used in many ways, singing, talking, whispering writing. You do them all. You use your voice in as many ways as anyone I can think of. And if I can ever be of help with your voice, supporting you, supporting your film, supporting your work, uh, just reach out, man. I I'll definitely be- will. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. That's very kind of you. And and, and your show is intellectual as well and, and, and completely on point with everything that you're talking about right now. So thank you for having your show do this because there's there's not that many out there and we need it next time uh i'm either out uh, in cali or you're on the road i'll find you and we'll do this in person because i think you're a closet professor but i'll say that for another time uh, all the best to <laughs> i'm gonna make you coffee i'm gonna make you, you know motherfucker we didn't i'm drinking coffee while we're talking <laughs> we didn't even talk about k- kavat let's just say two seconds kavat which is it's okay another like you know pelt on the wall for you man you are man i want to be you when i grow up dude i'm telling you we <laughs> We, we let's do this let's do this in person in front of people and talk sure. about anything you want to all best to you and your amazing lovely family and if i can be of help let me know thank you rob thank you so much man this this was a really phenomenal interview i, I really enjoyed it all thoroughly. the all the best Serge. we'll catch up with you again soon be well okay brother you too Bye-bye. Bye. i want to thank Serge tonkian for being here with us today on murmur i want to thank you for being here with us today on murmur but you can take a chance and be with us all the time. It's true. It's so true. <laughs> the website, murmurradio.com. Anytime access, subscribe to the show, download the show. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Social handles, follow us on social handles. We update, we inform, we enlighten ourselves, if no one else, at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. Email murmurradio at gmail.com. All sorts of stuff. See ya.